You're listening to Huddle Up with Josh Kelsky. Welcome to Huddle Up. This week, I sat down with the Marlins TV analyst, Todd Hollinsworth. We talked about his MLB career, winning a World Series with the Marlins. We talked about his broadcasting career and more coming up on Huddle Up. And I hope you guys enjoy the podcast. Todd, after playing in 149 games with 139 hits and 59 RBIs during your rookie season, what did winning the NL Rookie of the Year award do for your career? <laughs> well, uh, I think at that point in time, I was as relieved as anything. Uh, you know, most people who know the Dodgers history, long history of Rookies of the Year, and certainly the expectations that go along with being a young player in that organization, uh, I was able to meet those expectations, and I was very, very excited Obviously, for myself, um, it wasn't an easy year. I mean, it was a trying year in some regards. I had a good start. I slumped a couple of different times. I thought I was going to get sent down, recovered, uh, continued to play well, and, and, and followed in a long line of uh, Dodger Rookies of the Year, and something that, uh, as I've said so many times before, very, very proud of. I mean, we were five in a row, and that's, that's pretty awesome. And, and I'm not sure. I never say never in the game of baseball because I feel like you know crazy things happen every day, but hard to believe that five in a row will ever happen for another franchise, and to be the fifth kind of seals the deal on that. So I was in the right spot at the right time and uh, very, very grateful, uh, very, very blessed, and uh, I had a great organization, a great manager in Tommy Lasorda, uh, tremendous teammates, uh, and one of them, Tim Wallach, who's our bench coach here uh, with the Marlins. So I mean, I had a lot of guys that were raising me right over there, and I uh, owe them an awful lot. They made playing that season very easy for me. And during your career, you played on eight different teams. Twelve of the fourteen teams were in the National League. There's twelve of the fourteen years were in the National League. What's the difference between the two leagues? Well, as a, as a player, now early on, if you're an everyday player, you know whether the it's, whether it's the American League or the National League, I'm not sure. I really thought that there was much of a difference. I mean, I, you, you know, you, you make your rounds through the circuit and you become familiar with the teams and the organizations, and of course, you see more National League teams when you're a National Leaguer than than you would in the American League, and vice versa. But the point point is, is that once you're familiar with everybody and most of the guys who are staying, meaning guys who have careers at the major league level. Um, you know, you have to figure out how to succeed against those guys over and over and over again. So that's the challenge that really presents itself. If you stay on one side, as many of the good guys, you know, most of the teams want to retain those guys. So, you know, the point is that. But I always felt like there was a, um, an advantage to, to a, a position player, obviously, in that, um, you know, when you're in the National League, you always have a chance to be involved in a National League ball game. Uh, in the American League, there's no promise of that. Now, later in my career, when I was in the American League, it was, you know, you were either playing or you weren't. And when you weren't, you, you very rarely did, you know, you very had very little chance of getting into the ballgame. In fact, uh, I think it was my last year with the Cleveland Indians, and I don't think I got on the field till like, the second week of the season. The whole first week, I just I didn't even play as we were marching out our starters, and we were playing playing pretty well. just wasn't an opportunity to get out there. So... It's kind of how that goes. So obviously, I, I enjoy the National League style of baseball uh, a little bit more. I know that so much is made, at least in terms of the DH, um, being in the American League. I get it, but I don't think that the National League would argue that it's about pitchers hitting. It's just about the strategy of the game. It opens up an opportunity for a spot in the lineup to where pinch hitters get involved, double switches get involved, and strategy actually matters. Where I think in the American League, there's a lot less of that. And you also played on the Marlins 2003 World Series champion season. Mm -hmm. What was it like when Josh Beckett threw that last pitch and tagged him out running down the first baseline? Uh, it was uh, 
it was a it, it's it's a memory that as I was listening to you talk about it right there, it just comes right back to life again. Where we all were in the dugout, where we were on the field, where we were celebrating after he makes the tag of Jorge Posada, who by the way is part of this franchise now too, uh, here with the Marlins. Um, but it, you know, it just kind of it was that moment in time. It's frozen for most of us. It, it can't be touched because. We were a team, a franchise, um, a group of guys that came together that year that didn't play very good baseball in April, didn't play very good baseball in May, cost a man his job, um, recovered, rebounded, got good, got real good, beat expectations, beat a 100-win team, beat another 100-win team, and then beat the mighty Yankees Nobody expected us to do any of it. And I think that it was appropriate that Josh got that last out because I think Josh not only represented us as well as, you know, anybody could have represented the, you know, the whole group in terms of the on-field performance. But I feel like he became a shooting star in that postseason because he went from being good all season long to being one of the best, most dominant pitchers in the game. And that postseason honestly belongs to him in a lot of ways. He had not one heroic moment. He had multiple heroic moments in that postseason. And after playing 1,118 games in your career, what was it like when you changed from playing on the field every day to calling the games in the booth? Well, um, I prefer to be playing, and if you listen to me on air, a lot of that, enthousi that enthusiasm comes out an awful lot because I wish I'm out there with these guys. But it's easy for me to celebrate. I, I, I love this Marlins ball club. I love this group of guys. They're growing. They're getting better. They're working hard. Uh, I certainly enjoy the process, and it is a joy to me to be able to be up here. I do very much like what I do. Um, and at the same time, it, it is something that is kind of woven into us as ballplayers, our, our pursuit of playing at the major league level. You named off the number of games I played. I think it's over 1,000 or whatever. But the point is is that you, know, you kind of dedicate yourself to something, and you want to see your way through it. And being able to, again, very, very blessed to be able to continue to do this and get to talk about it every day. Uh, in a way that keeps me connected to a game that I love so much. And right now there's a controversial topic going around baseball, and Justin Verlander is the leader of this topic. It's the juice balls. There have been – the MLB is on track to hit nearly 1,800 more home runs than they did last season. So something changed somewhere along the lines of the baseballs or players getting stronger. What, what do you think about these juice balls comments? Well, I think it's all uh, right. I, I do. I agree wholeheartedly with Justin Verlander. <laughs> He's not wrong. He's right. Um, I also think that the baseball players are a lot better, too. That's the other thing. You know, with this conversation, it's not, an ice, it, it's not fair to isolate the baseball and say, okay, well, the baseball should get the credit for all the offense that we're seeing in the game because I don't think that's the right conversation. The right conversation is these hitters are making tremendous adjustments to what was a major issue a few seasons ago when we were talking about high velocity, lots of speed in the game, 95, 97 miles an hour from starting pitchers, 97 to 100 out of the bullpen. Guys didn't know what to do. Strikeouts were going through the roof, and hitters were struggling. They've made the adjustment. They've made the changes, and they are reaping some of the rewards. I will also add in as a footnote that the balls are juiced. I mean, they really are. I mean, the ball's flying out of here. It's undeniable, I think, what we're seeing. But my point is this. To have the two conversations and to separate that out, I don't think that's very fair to the hitters. At the same time, uh, there is definitely something there. 
but the credit still must be given to this group. They're a special group of hitters. These guys are doing some great things in the game today. These guys work hard. They focus. They prep. You know, they prep like nothing I've ever seen before. <laughs> we talked about what time do we usually get to the field. Most of these guys are here at lunchtime, starting to prepare themselves each and every night for a big, big league ball game. So, it is impressive to me. Yes, that uh, you know some of these guys are hitting balls the other way, uh, a really, really far. But at the same time, I know that they're working hard behind the scenes. And I think a lot of what we're seeing just is naturally these guys are working hard, lifting weights, doing everything right, trying to be better and bigger. Um, but at the same time, I think the ball is getting a few extra feet. And another topic that's mostly relevant to the Marlins is catcher's interference. So we saw the other day Jorge Alfaro, <laughs> it was a wild pitch, and he went to get the ball. Now the runner, Gene Segura, came home. And when Jorge was going for the tag or for the ball, he was not near home plate. He was not in the baseline either. He was more to the right side of the third baseline. And Gene Segura came in, looked like he went out of the baseline. He was on the grass and managed to hit Jorge in the face, and he was called safe. Now another time was when Brian McCann from the Braves, a few games ago, the Marlins had a chance to tie the game, and... Uh, Jorge Alfaro, again, was running home, and Brian McCann was, had one foot on the base, which you could argue that it blocked Jorge from scoring. So the, he was called out initially, then the Marlins challenged, and after about 20 seconds, he was called out. So what are umpires looking in catchers, looking for in catchers' interference? Well, they're looking for a lot of things. First of all, you've got to give the base runner a lane. The question is, when do you give the base runner a lane? And I think that's where many fans struggle to interpret. And I'm not even sure I can give you the right answer on this one because I'm not, I'm not so sure that it's necessarily a subjective conversation or, or, or an idea, but I do think that there is some subjectivity to it. You know, the question is, when is a lane established for the runner? You know, is it you know, as soon as he starts towards home and he's got to have a lane because a catcher can catch the ball at any time, right? We know that there could be 15 feet, it could be 30 feet, it could be 45 feet before he secures the baseball and then provides, a, you know, a lane or an opportunity for the base runner to score. And sometimes it happens within five feet because the ball, you know, comes at the exact same time the guy's coming in. So there has to be the ability to read the play as it goes. Um, I think in all of those instances that Everything kind of felt like it was handled right. Um, the one that I will get at is, um, and I don't know if you saw this one because it did just happen right before the All-Star break, but it was uh, Marisnik of the Houston Astros hit, I think, Lucroy. Um, now that play right there clearly to me is a little bit more targeting. And so he was inside and it was inside, and that can't happen. And to me, that's what the rule was all about. Um, ideally, what we're getting at here is putting catchers in a safe position to field the baseball, to apply a tag, and at the same time making the game as fair as we possibly can in that a, a base runner doesn't have to um, create home plate, meaning he doesn't have to go through somebody to get to it. He should have a clear vision and a clear line, you know, in some point of touching the white plate. That's the whole point. So, and I think baseball has handled itself pretty well on this one, but again, there is the interpretations of the rules. and. So when it comes down to it, those rules a lot of times get argued over. And I think that's kind of what we saw in the other two instances that you were talking about is when does blocking the plate, like what's the timing on it? When do we establish it? Because even in the last one that you mentioned, Alfaro clearly gave a lane and, you know, there, there, there was no issue there um, and there was no call there. But I think that, you know, some people thought that there should have been um, 
uh, you know, some targeting involved. And going to the Marlins side of things, the Marlins have mainly struggled against two of their NL East rivals, who they see a lot. The Washington Nationals, who the Marlins have lost 10 out of 13 of, the, of those 23 games, of their 13 matchups, rather. And the Atlanta Braves, who the Marlins have only defeated two out of their 12 meetings. What do the Marlins need to do to be able to defeat their NL East rivals? Well, uh, right off the top, there is a simple answer to this. It goes something like this, play a little bit better. <laughs> I mean, those are two pretty good teams that you're talking about. Um, sometimes it has to do with matchups. And, you know, that's what I think fans, they, they lose the idea, like the, the hows and the whys. It's easy for me to say, okay, well, this team's better. Maybe the Atlanta Braves have a little bit more talent. They've got an Acuna. They've got a Freddie Freeman. they got a Dansby Swanson playing great. They go out and get a Josh Donaldson. There's names that I think most fans are say are a little bit more recognizable. But when this team, when this Marlins team plays pretty good baseball, they don't beat themselves. That's really what it comes down to for me. You know, when you look at the season series with both of those teams, one thing that we know that the Marlins have done particularly well is pitch. And starting pitching has been a, a huge topic of conversation because it's been so good. In fact, they've been a top 10 team essentially all year long in Major League Baseball. So a little bit more of that pressure gets put on the offense. But against those two organizations, they actually hit Marlins pitching better than the numbers would indicate. So you have to give credit to the team at some point. The Washington Nationals are a very good team. They're going out there and scoring runs against good pitching, which the Marlins particularly have. So it's not as if... The Marlins are doing everything right. The Nationals are doing everything right, and we're just losing every ball game. They are kind of, in, in, in some way, beating what the numbers would tell you should happen in that ball game. But I will say this: on the last road trip, both those teams were essentially played, and I know it wasn't a, a you know a favorable trip for the Marlins, but the combined run differential it was only 11. So it shows you that they're getting better against those two teams. I don't think that the plan was to win the World Series this year with this group here in Miami, but to get incrementally better, and I think they're doing that. So right before the All-Star break, the Marlins had played six games in July. They won one of those games. What did they mostly focus on over the All-Star break? And I'm going to say, to start off, home runs, because <laughs> yesterday they got a win, the first game right. after the All-Star break. Three, Three homers. Home runs, right. Yeah. So what what did they mainly focus on over the All-Star break? I bet that they probably didn't focus on too much. Most guys want to get away from the game on the uh, on uh, on the All-Star break. You know, you play every day. And here's the thing. When you're a kid growing up, right, we wish we could play baseball every day. Well, when you get up here, you get to play baseball every day, and you kind of flip back. You're like, boy, I wish I had an off day. <laughs> it's kind of how it goes. So you play all these games, but you've got, to, you've got to relax your mind. You've got to take some time off. You've got to get away from the game of baseball as far as the – the grind and the work and I think most guys did a good job getting away spend some time with your family that is so important uh, to be with your wife and your kids if you can and, and people who are important to you in your life because you just can't give them nearly the same time during the season because that's where you start to key back in I'll give you an example Miguel Rojas he went on vacation he came back from vacation on Thursday Miggy Rowe came by the stadium got a little workout in on Thursday in preparation for Friday's game yesterday's ball game so that's kind of the point you you, you want to start focusing you want to get locked back in again but at the same time you do you do need that downtime um, home runs sometimes they happen really it's just a it's a byproduct of, of preparation before the game I don't think that that's something that they were talking about but I will say this the Marlins haven't been playing particularly well in the first half at home they've struggled actually a little bit more at home than they have on the road so yesterday was a good ball game but they played against the Mets and the Mets are a team that they've played pretty well against here of late that road trip that you mentioned which was the start of July the team only averaged 2.2 runs per ball game 
They scored, what, seven runs last night, eight runs last night? So off to a good start. Now let's talk about Sandy Alcantara. During the first part of the season, he was 4-8 and eight with an ERA of 3.82. As some are saying, and I agree that Sandy will be a star of this team in the, in the near future. So what, what do we expect from him, and do you see him as a star pitcher for this Marlins organization in the upcoming years? Well, he's definitely an all-star, so yeah, I'm with you. Um, He's, he's growing. I mean, the great thing about this young man is that he's 23 years old. He's hungry to get better. He's hungry to be awesome. And for all the all of your fans that are out there that are listening, all the Marlins fans that are listening to this podcast, I mean, the one thing that separates most major leaguers, not amongst other major leaguers, but from everybody else in the world, for the guys who don't make it, is desire. Um, yeah, some guys can do some special things. Some guys can throw the ball a little bit harder. Some guys can hit it a little farther. They maybe have some better instincts. But i got to be honest with you, what it almost always comes down to, in my opinion, is one's desire to make it happen on a major league field. And I think for Sandy, he really wants it. One thing that we've learned about Sandy in the first half is that he's a tremendous competitor. He can go out there and he can fight and he can battle and he can make adjustments and he's needed to make some adjustments. I don't think his first half was perfect by any stretch of the imagination. He'd be the first person to tell you. But he got to go to the All-Star game because he hung in there. He didn't miss a start. He battled and battled and battled some more even when, you know, things weren't always going his way. I mean, he, I, I thought it was just absolutely perfect that he went to the All-Star game, pitched the eighth inning, got a strikeout and a ground ball double play. We talked about it all the time, but the ground ball double play also is an indicator that there's guys on base. And I think he's got like 15 or 16 in the first half ground ball double plays. That's, in, that's an incredible number. That's making pitches in tight spots, right? But it's also you have to admit that there's runners on base because you're getting those big double plays. So it's a combination of the two. So I think for Sandy, it's a step. It's, it's, it's a big step forward, and I think that there's a few more big steps that he's going to take, but he's definitely on his way. There has also been some discussion about Sandy being the only Marlins All-Star. And what I want to tell these people, you don't need a team of All-Stars to be an All-Star caliber team. What would you say to those people that don't want to be represented by just one All-Star? Yeah, well said. Um, well, you know, listen, you got to go out there and you got to play. At the end of the day, I think the Marlins would love and would have been thrilled to have five or six All-Stars. And hopefully one day they do have five or six All-Stars because those are fun times. That's when you know you're winning and everybody's taking notice of how good your team is. Um, at the same time, I, you know, this is one of the you know situations where Sandy, Sandy's there. Yeah, there could have been a couple other guys. It was funny because we were, you know, we were talking on air just before the the All Star game, and we threw out like three or four legitimate names, and we thought that, you know, Miggy Rowe was on a great run, and we could have argued that he deserved to go, and he was playing great. He's been doing great out of the leadoff spot. I made an, I, I argued that Nick Anderson, who who was at the time second in the National League um, in in strikeouts per nine innings, uh, he's leading the rookies. I mean, doing all these great things and, and good stuff that's going on there um, you could kind of work your way around maybe make an argument here or there for a Caleb or you know a few other guys that that uh, you know maybe you, honestly if Coop had another month Coop could have gone so that's kind of the point is that I think that there's a few guys that uh, had done some things that probably warranted some consideration but at the end the reason Sandy at least in my opinion, ended up winning out is because he made every start. It was because he was out there every day. He was there from April 2nd to, you know, the end of the first half and made all those starts, had the good ERA, had the good run and some good numbers to go along with, and it has, completely, it has clearly impressed many people in baseball. So I think there's one takeaway that all of us Marlins fans should see 
for the first half of the season and for this team the upcoming years. You don't need a team of all-stars to be an all-star caliber team. Thank you so much, Todd Allensworth, for being on here. I'm a huge fan of yours, and I know all of these Marlins fans uh, that are listening to my podcast are too. So thank you so much for being on. Well, I appreciate it, Joshua. It's truly a pleasure to be with you today. I love your passion for this team, and we share that. There's no doubt about it. And I know that this Marlins fan base is growing here in Miami, and there's a lot of people out there that are going to be really, really happy in a few years to see what an exciting young team this is uh, becoming, what they are, and what they're actually becoming. And it's, it's, it's so much fun to be part of the journey.